1: This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals podcast, hosted on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is uh my friend Norman Brandon. Norman, thank you so much for taking the time to uh chat with me today. Thank you. I'm yeah. Excited. Thanks. I am too, man. I mean, these days there's uh it's simple things that can really get us excited. Um Right. But I did need something to do today as <laughs> yeah. well. So, so perfect. <laughs> we're 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 good to go. So uh let me read your bio real quick and then we're just gonna uh have a conversation. Um there's cool. no questions uh, prepared. This is just an organic talk, so Really looking forward to that. Uh, But first, over the last 25 years, Norman Brandon has worked as a musician, critic, author, DJ, university lecturer, television host, documentary filmmaker, marketing creative, and record label manager. Although best known as the co-founder and guitar player for Texas is the reason, he first made his mark in hardcore punk bands like Shelter and 108 and capped his performance career with New England, Original, and Gratitude. Brandon is also the author of the Anti-Matter Anthology, a 1990s post-punk and hardcore reader, which collects most of his music writing from that decade, work that originally ran in alternative press, vibe, and anti-matter, the seminal fanzine he wrote and published between 1993 and 96, currently working on an expanded second edition of the Anti-Matter Anthology for publication next year and addition to a second book. It examines the relationship between queer language, ethnicity, and his own personal story. Norman lives in Brooklyn with his partner, John, and their dachshund son, Bozy. (laughs) Love it. I'm a dachshund lover, too, so I'm really jazzed (laughs) you put that in there.
2: He's uh, he's a senior dog, and he's very... He sleeps like 22 hours a day at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and wakes up just to be kind of confused and hungry and uh <laughs> for sure. But uh he's a he's a good dog. He's he's a rescue and yeah. it's um he definitely uh, we weren't planning on getting a dog when we got him. Yeah. And so it was a weird Instagram thing many years ago where a friend of ours was fostering him mm-hmm. and posted a picture and i just turned to john and said we have to meet that dog
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love it and uh here you so... are with them that's so cool my parents actually um our family dog uh one of them also oh. a rescue, uh unfortunately passed away last year uh, as a mini mm. dachshund and uh a rescue mm. as well his name was bentley <laughs> or sir bentley and uh he's you know, such an awesome little guy. Real fancy pants, but you know, like that's how Dachshunds are. Um That's actually
2: funny that his name was Sir Bentley because yeah. technically Bosey's full name is Lord Alfred Bosey Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's there there's there's rationale. There uh so Bosey, the name. Yeah I, I originally got the name because so back in the nineties, um I discovered Oscar Wilde in a big way and sure. was just insanely obsessed with him. And, um, and I was reading, you know, a lot of biographies and obviously, um, he had this one huge work, De Profundis, which was more or less letters to his love, Bosie. Yeah. Um, Bosie was the nickname for Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, and I didn't know what the, what it meant. Um, I just thought it sounded cute and it could be a dog's name. Yeah. Um, and then a friend of mine from Scotland, uh, was like, you know what that means, right? <laughs> I was like, no, I have no idea. And he's like, it means like cuddles. Oh, and I man. was like, Oh my God, I love it. Yes. <laughs> um, and it made sense. Like Bosie is sort of close to bosom. Mm-hmm. And so the idea being like, Oh, come here and give me a cuddles. Uh, you know, he would say that his nan would always be like, come here and give me a Bosie, you know? So oh. it's, uh, yeah. So that was kind of perfect. So that's where Lord Alfred comes from. Cause that, that was actually Bosie's name was Lord Alfred Douglas.
1: I love And then
2: it. Valentine yeah. comes from, um, cause we got him on Valentine's day. So
1: <laughs> I love how like, you know, just ridiculous in the best sort of way, like, um, pet parents can be, uh, and that's a perfect <laughs> example, man, but it's the best. Like, I love it. Yeah. I mean, you're well, not, like, I think
2: yeah. that, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of paternal love to give and sure. no outlet.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's how my, uh, fiance and I are with our mice, we have two mice and those are our pets. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we, <laughs> we do want to get a dog at some point, but, um, you know, we actually, it's so ridiculous. Like during the holidays, we'll get each other gifts from the mice, you know, and I'll take time to write in little mice handwriting and put paws and you know, <laughs> hey. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like,
2: I've done it. No I, I left a birthday card signed with Bozy's name and <laughs> a paw print.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's so great. I mean, yeah. like animals are super special. I, I remember um, the, when the first uh, mouse passed my, let's see my fiance um, had mice before I met her. So it wasn't like something that I was personally into, but. Um, I grew really fond of uh the two mice she had, and um one of them passed away and it was early on in us dating um so I, didn't, I- hadn't really had a chance to bond with that mouse, but the other one um was with us for at least a year after the fact and and they typically only live about two years, give or take, but you know I'll never forget I've had uh dogs in my life since I was born, and I love dogs I love mm-hmm. cats you know i just love I love animals but when that uh, second mouse passed away, I cried the ugliest cry, like just like I have Aww. with any dog. I know, like, <laughs> I felt so ridiculous in a way, but it. I'm grateful because it showed me, like, it doesn't matter the size of the pet or, you know, like whatever we think about them, like, love is love. And that, you know, attachment is really there. And then my fiance went and actually had them cremated, and we have little paw prints and ceramics and have them in a mini (laughs) urn i'm not i'm not kidding at all (laughs) no that's a little i've thought
2: about this though i gotta say i i couldn't do it i couldn't do the cremate and keep the ashes thing it wouldn't it couldn't work for me but I, (laughs) i i understand this ugly cry thing on a different level and it's sort of interesting because i actually think this is it's a it's actually a very human trait that we do Mm. and we do it with animals but we also do it with each other and with ourselves sure and that is um we create these stories Mm. right and so of course bosie has this gigantic backstory that i don't know if it's true but i've decided (laughs) that this must be what happened to
1: him (laughs) that's so good point
2: you know and so the you know one of the things i remember when we first got him Um, you know, he was probably six or seven years old and, you know, he was discovered in Indiana eating trash, was just a stray. And, uh, the rescue in New York, the woman, uh, there, Eve, she was actually in Indiana visiting family for Christmas. And so she wanted to bring a couple of dogs home. He was one of the lucky dogs that she was able to bring. And but when he got here, his teeth were like rotting out. Yeah. So it was clear that he was going to have to basically get almost all his teeth removed. And, you know, that's like a major surgery. They have to put him under and, yeah. you know, they have to keep him there overnight. And he had just, he had been with us at this point for a couple of months, um, before the surgery. And we knew he was suffering. We knew that, you know, having rotting teeth doesn't feel good. It doesn't you know, it's not a great situation for him health-wise, holistically. Yeah. And so we eventually, you know, we kind of put it off uh, for a while sure. because we didn't want, we felt like he was already traumatized and we didn't want to add to the trauma, yeah. but it was getting too much. And, uh, you know, apparently it reeked. <laughs> <laughs> and so we finally booked the uh, the surgery. But I remember being at the hospital and handing him over, to the doctor, knowing that he was going to be in surgery, that he was gonna be there overnight, that he was gonna be with new people. And in my head, I thought, you know, of course I created this story about how he was thinking that he was being abandoned all over again. Mm. And, you know, I came home and cried my life out. I was completely just wrecked um, out of guilt that, you know, he was thinking these things. The reality is he's he wasn't. Dogs don't think like that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> he may have been confused. Right. He may have been like, what's this thing that's happening to me? Um, I liked that other guy. I kind of want to see him again. <laughs> but, you know, at best that's that's all he got before they put him under and he didn't feel things. <laughs>
3: right, right.
2: <laughs> so it's It's funny to me because every time I do that to Bosie, I think about how I do that to myself all the time. Yes, yeah. (laughs) And it's just, you know, creating that narrative structure that is more or less just, you know, a handy way for us to organize our lives, regardless of whether or not it's accurate.
1: So well said. And, um, you know, I think that's a really great segue right there, Um, you know, to talk a little bit about spirituality. You know as you're saying the stories we attach to things um you know whether it's a pet or as you said like things in life in general the stories we create um you know that's something we all do it's part of this inherent human condition you know and and we Mm -hmm. have to um you know label things and and be able to discuss them and put words on onto uh everything that you know comes up in our our experience but um well, it was like a couple of days ago, I was doing, uh I was being interviewed for Vice magazine. They're doing a piece on mindfulness um, and, you know, mm-hmm. in the time of COVID and, you know, I was talking about, and it was a really wonderful reminder to me um, how the practice of mindfulness and, and many other practice, meditative practices do this as well, but specifically when you're sitting, you know, practicing mindfulness or not just sitting, but intentionally being mindful wherever you are in the day. Um one of the beautiful things to me is that I recognize that whatever I look at um I've placed a label on it my brain has associated all of these thoughts and experiences uh, you know onto that thing and if I'm not intentionally mindfully looking at it you know I'm seeing it through this lens of ideas right. and concepts I'm not actually seeing whatever it is for what it is you know it could be a guitar it could be a blade of grass it could be you know, the, the speakers uh, that I'm hearing you on right now, it doesn't matter, like whatever it is. And, and so I'm, you know, very grateful for that. It it makes life to me, at least that much more interesting and exciting, especially in times like right now when, you know, most of us that are taking the, uh, you know, the self, not isolation at this point, you know, just the social distancing, as I know, things are starting to open up a little more. But, you know, we still have more time on our hands. And I understand like there's been a rise in things like addiction and uh, of course depression, and there's been suicides Mm -hmm. and all all sorts of traumatic things. But I, I believe that the practice of mindfulness and other, you know, meditative based practices um, really help with that. And that's based on my own direct experience. And that's, you know, something I've been going to more now than ever, but uh, how about yourself? Let's, you know, I know, you're known for so many different things, but you like, as far as I know, I kind of recognize you first and foremost from that Krishna consciousness, you know, with shelter and one hundred and eight right. and stuff. But um, I know I just talked a lot and went in a few different directions. Yeah, where do I go? No, I don't. I'm just like I said, man, we're just chatting. So why don't you? Well, just Well, I pick do it think that
2: I, yeah, I do think that. Um, so there are a couple of threads that I think we will come back to, yeah. just organically. Um, I can definitely go back to the Krishna thing just to sort of, you know, kind of put that to bed. Sure. Um, So, obviously, like, I think that that I've had this really, um, I don't know, I I would actually describe it as a sort of tenuous relationship with spirituality Mm. and religion in general for, you know, almost all my life. Well, actually, I can say all my life.
3: Sure.
2: I, um, you know, I was raised in a Pentecostal. Latino immigrant family. Nice. And in when you're raised in that kind of environment, it is basically authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my concept of religion never felt like personal. It always felt, um, it always felt tied to hierarchies. Sure. And tied to absolutism and that obviously you know for a kid like me stopped making sense pretty early on <laughs> yeah. and uh i just sort of had to grin and bear it um you know in my family um until i could figure find another way and so you know in the late 80s um when i first started getting into like hardcore um and punk in new york um you know, obviously if you were around in nineteen eighty seven and nineteen eighty-eight, um, you know, one of the first bands in your hardcore starter kit is the Chromex. Of course. And uh <laughs> and so, you know, for me, I just remember thinking, those guys are badass. I just want those beads. Right. Um <laughs> like I didn't know anything about Krishna or right. about, you know, even Hinduism, for that matter, I really didn't know anything about anything. Yeah, I just knew I liked those beads. Yes, I was going to get them somehow. So eventually, uh, I was hanging out with my friend in junior high school, and he had an older brother who was a hardcore kid, and so we would like listen to his records. And he told me they were Krishna beads. So I said, "Great. Mm-hmm. Where do I get them? He's like, "You got to go to a Krishna temple. so i I, <laughs> I looked it up. And I went to a Krishna temple and I actually ran out. (laughs) (laughs) I walked in, I got freaked out and I literally just ran out like I was leaving some sort of crazy cult. And uh, (laughs) I never got the beads. So I was like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) It just, you know, I remember exactly what it was. I remember looking or I walked into the temple room. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a Murti of Srila Prabhupada. Mm. And just, I don't know what it was about seeing it, or maybe it was just sort of growing up with that Pentecostal-ish idea about uh, worshiping idols and the golden calf and all these things. And then seeing this like essentially Indian idol (laughs) (laughs) standing there or sitting there, it, it, it sort of put me in a place where I got freaked out. Um, but I went back a few months later and I did get the beads <laughs> success. <laughs> yes. But I didn't stay. I didn't, I didn't stay for anything like that. So it wasn't really until I would say around 1989, um, that I met this guy whose name at the time was Mark mm-hmm. and Mark was an old early eighties skinhead guy. He actually has the word skins tattooed on the back of his head. Mm. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, he was fully sleeved, like, but also like the most gentle human being that I'd ever met. And coming from like my background of just, you know, basically my entire life was rooted in violence. My mother very much violently abused me my entire life until I could fight back, and then she stopped. But coming from that that sort of background, I I needed a little gentleness. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And meeting him uh, and sort of seeing the contrast of of sort of what he looked like on the outside versus who he was, and and sort of how he um, how he sort of presented himself and and sort of related to me. I just really just sort of fell in love. I was just like, this guy's an amazing person. I want what he's having. Give me some of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I started, you know, I, I met him in Tompkins square park cause the Harry Krishna's used to, um, give out food there on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it would always be like homeless people and hardcore kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, but so we would, you know, we would hang out, we would talk, And then eventually I, I actually came to the temple for a program and, uh, and I started just experimenting with meditation, experimenting with Japa meditation, specifically chanting.
3: Yeah,
2: sure. And, um, you know, it didn't really rock my world one way or another. I was just sort of like interested and remained interested, started reading Bhagavad Gita, started, you know, going regularly to the temple, but you know, at best I was still sort of marginally interested and I would say it wasn't until May of 1990. Um, my best friend died in a car accident Mm. and that pretty much did that thing where you question mortality and you want to know, you want to know the answers. (laughs)
3: And,
2: uh, and so I just dove in head first after that it was literally all I was interested in. Um, I needed so much from it and, um, and it gave me so much, even though, you know, it's not something that I, I, pr- I probably continued to practice for, um, maybe another 13 years after that. Mm. Um, but I think where my cognitive dissonance was, and this was always a problem, as you can imagine, is that I've always been a little skeptical of God. Sure. Yeah. You're <laughs> preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> so to, so to join a, um, you know, a religion that's really a hundred percent based on God, sure, <laughs> it was a little, you know, it was a little funky. Um, but you know, I was also very honest about that. Mm. I think that, you know, I may have had moments where I was probably a little bit you know, especially early on where I was probably a little bit of a fanatic because that's how people get when they're young and get into new sort of religious movements. Um, <laughs> yes. but I, I, would say I, I tempered off from that pretty quickly. Um, you know, by the time it was like 1993 and I was in shelter, um, I'd say that I was already sort of off the fanatic boat and, you know, it's one of the reasons why I quit the band yeah. ultimately because I started to feel like I don't want to, I don't want to feel like a representative of this thing anymore. Like, I don't want to feel like that wasn't to say that I wanted to leave or that I wanted to stop practicing. I felt like I was getting benefits from that. I felt like had I not discovered it when I did, I could have gone a very different, horrible route. Yeah. Um, and I just, but I just felt like this needed to be my, my personal shit, basically. Yeah. Um. I didn't want to broadcast it anymore. Yeah. And, and so I quit the band in '93, but I l- I played my last shows with them in '94. And, and then after that, I pretty much would say that that's what I did. I kept it to myself. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, sure. I just, you know, everybody knew. That I was still, you know, doing whatever I was doing. I remember, like, um, when Texas is the reason was uh, in the middle of our major label bidding war. At one point, um, I just got like stressed out about it and didn't want to deal with it so i just literally bought a ticket to india and just said peace i'm leaving for 2 months you know just cool cool your cool your jets
1: good old <laughs> india
2: yep yeah and uh you know i love that's kind of what i did that's kind of what india was for for me sure. it for was a like a pure people. escape yeah <laughs> Right, but you know but back then too it's funny because it's changed um or at least i've heard it's changed because yeah. i haven't been back in so long but um you know, I think the last time I went was maybe 97 or something. And like, I remember they were just getting like their first internet cafe or their cyber cafe in this village. Oh, yeah. Um, like, I used to go to this place Rindavan. It's just a, it's a, it's a fairly small kind of village. Um, when I'd first gone in 1993 or four, um, you know, there was literally like no sign of civilization. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was pretty much just temples, village people, cows, and uh that's about it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and Loy Bazaar, which is this amazing shopping district. But oh,
3: cool.
2: that was um but that was it. And all they sold at Loy Bazaar anyway was like religious stuff. So you <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and clothes. So um so, yeah, but by the time I left, you know, the the internet was creeping in. Um, it's not like your cell phone worked. So it really was like, it really was like when you went to India in the 90s, it really felt like, I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'll see you in two months. Maybe I'll send you a postcard. Sure. Like the, you, you completely cut yourself off. Um, and, and that was necessary for me. I, 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 as much as I am in public, Um, I do have this like intense desire to be left alone as well. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, so I'm constantly sort of volleying between those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'll fast forward a little bit to, uh, I want to say it was 2003 or 2004, Mm -hmm. I think 2003, Um, where I'd say that that was the year that I sort of officially cut ties. Um, and the irony of that all is that, you know, my real sort of plunge into, um, Krishna consciousness, my sort of immersion, uh, was catalyzed from the death of my best friend. my exit from Krishna consciousness was catalyzed by my near death experience <laughs> mm-hmm. um, where I was in Oakland and I was crossing the street. Uh, it was a Saturday morning at 9am and, uh, a tow truck turned into me, hit me, um, left me unconscious for three days in the hospital for almost two months, traumatic brain injury, tons of broken bones. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a mess yeah. and I, will say that, you know, because my pelvis was broken in two places, I couldn't walk for maybe four to five months, I would God. say, before it fully healed. And then I had to go to physical therapy to, to sort of learn how to walk um, on my pelvis again. Wow. But <clears throat> here's the thing. Not many of us get a chance to think about our lives for four to five uh, months in bed. <laughs> right. Yes, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that was really uh you know sort of a clearing house kind of situation. Um I just thought about everything. I, it gave me an opportunity to think about where I was heading personally, professionally, spiritually, like all these things. Uh and and it gave me a sort of impetus to to clear house wherever I needed to. Right. And the first thing I realized when I came to and sort of like, um, you know, averted disaster or death yeah. was, okay, let's be real. You don't believe in God actually. <laughs> yeah. And once I sort of just finally gave into that point, um, I had to sort of call my guru <laughs> <laughs> and we broke up, but, wow. um, you know, to his credit and he's an amazing person. Uh, his name is Donador Swami. He, uh, I've known Donador Swami since I was 15. I think we met. Um, and he still plays a role in my life. We still talk. We, uh, we became friends. And, you know, when I sort of, signed off from being a disciple um that was the conversation we had he said to me um so what's next and I was like what do you mean he's like with us and I was like I don't know I hadn't really thought about it (laughs) and he was like well do you like me I was like of course he's like I like you we can be friends (laughs) and I was like okay (laughs) wonderful so we have remained friends and, you know, I'm 46 now, so I've known him for 31 years. That's, and that's great. Yeah. It's, uh, we were talking about it the other day and I was saying, I'm actually older than you were when we met. Wow. Like, this is a weird thing.
1: <laughs> that is. I think it's really cool that you, you can maintain that, like. Um, you know and that's the beauty of this human experience like whatever works for you but like your friend said I like you you like me like cool we don't have to agree on everything or have the same beliefs like you know I just I was at one of the 108 reunion shows last year and it was a blast you know singing along and um, you know my root teacher is Ram so I do have an uh, a certain affection towards the Hindu Vedanta lineage but at the same time I have never with the exception when i was younger um identified as any you know quote unquote religious or spiritual with anyone particularly um right you know my for me though what what is interesting is i grew up uh, i wasn't forced to go to uh, church my parents believed in god Um, But I never had to go to church. And so I developed this real angsty, you know, teenage atheist, like, there is no God listening to chokehold and, you know, just screaming (laughs) along, like, you know, just all these, like, you know, it was crazy. But, but I was, I think, like, 1918, I don't know, somewhere around there in college. And I remember my piercer at the time, you know, I called him because I wanted to get the piercing done. And he's like, nah, I gave it up for for uh christ and i kind of laughed because wow. he, he yeah, like we were both in the hardcore scene like he was way into overcast like i was in one of the pictures and they're uh begging for indifference album he took and you know overcast is like devil core music and that's what we're into <laughs> and i thought he was kidding sure enough he wasn't he was dating um a, a hispanic girl at the time and uh going to a, a pentecostal church in holyoke massachusetts And I mean, I remember he, then he started getting on me about going with him and I'm like, no, I really don't want to, but I did. I finally broke down and I was interesting. Yes. But, but it gets even more interesting. And the (laughs) fact that, so I'm in this Pentecostal church and as you know, all too well, things are rather lively in, in churches and my friend and I are literally the only two white people in there. It's, you know, it's the. It's just people, the music's going, people are dancing in the spirit and speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, whatever. And I'm just like, what is going on? And then the time comes towards the end of the service where if you want to go up and be prayed over and accept Christ into your life, um, you know, you can. And I did. And I did not see that come. I know. (laughs) I didn't see that coming a mile away. I didn't anticipate it. But it goes back to, I think I felt so like lost in that time i needed something to attach to and identify with and mm-hmm. that it served that purpose for like 2 years roughly in my life like i went to a christian camp that summer with the church and again like i was one of the only two white kids there and um it was very interesting but i was all in you know like I yeah. I had the with the bumper stickers on my car. I stopped listening to, to most hardcore unless it was like Zayo or, you know, stuff that was Christian. And, but, and one thing, man, my brother is great because he has forgiven me for this, but I was so into it that I remember one day I went into his bedroom and he had, we both had great vinyl collections, but You know, he had some really stellar seven inches, like stuff that today I'm sure he could sell for a pretty penny. Not that he would, because you know we love that stuff. And I broke all of his records. Whoa! Broke all of. Okay, that's like that's above (laughs) and beyond.
2: I mean, I sold, I did sell my record collection to Venus Records for like no money at all before I moved to the temple. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't break anything. I'm not that crazy. No, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Dude, I was all
1: in. I'm telling you. But just like you, similarly, yeah, like it got to a point where I'm like, wait a minute, you know, what am I doing? Um, I don't believe. Well, so, you know, what's well,
2: funny about yeah, that, though, I I do think that I I mean, I hear the story and it actually resonates with me because I get it. I get yeah. that sort of sense of, you know, I think we, we kind of confuse just general social enthusiasm mm-hmm. and, and communal sort of or, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but you know, that sort of like communal energy, Mm. um, that, that sort of like moves us as some sort of spiritual euphoria a lot of times. Yes, And I think you start to feel like it's realer because that's what you're feeling. Yeah, And the fact is you feel that in other places, you feel that when you go to a show, right? You feel that, um, You know, anytime you go to a political rally, you feel that, you know, there are a lot of different places where you can get that sort of energy that sort of makes you feel almost like euphoric that you can do anything. Yeah. But when you attach it to a notion of God, you create a story about it. There's the energy that there's the energy. I had a religious
1: experience. Right.
2: And I think that, you know, that was one of my sort of critical Or sort of self-critical realizations that I was having, you know, because I would be like, well, how do I explain feeling like this when I bathed at Radha Kund? Or how do I explain, you know, feeling like this when I got initiated? Or, you know, well, of course I felt like that. I was taking this massive vow. It was like getting married. Like, I've never been married, but I'm going to assume people feel freaking great. Yeah. I I hope so. (laughs) In Most cases at
3: least. Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) So, you know, so I, I do think that I attach these stories to these experiences, um, and sort of reified them as spiritual or transcendent transcendental or, or something. Um, and they weren't. So what's sort of interesting about that now and, and sort of, I can fold this into like my present experience, right? Yeah. So in the last, Two years plus or so, I've been traveling in Soto Zen circles. Yep. That's, I'd say, that's sort of the predominant practice. And I, I work with uh, Dosho Port, who's a teacher, um, is a Dharma heir of Katagiri Roshi, and he, he is amazing. He's an amazing person, amazing teacher. I've, I've really sort of enjoyed working with him. Uh, we were having a conversation. Uh, in a practice meeting not too long ago. And I was saying how there's a lot of things about Zen Buddhism or Buddhism in general, really, Mm. that are so different from sort of like, quote unquote, other religions. And especially my experience in Krishna consciousness, that I still have to sort of remind myself that, you know, those things aren't the stories that I that I've given them. Right? right. Yeah. So one of the things that I, 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 think is hilarious is so for the first like year, I think of going to different Zendo's in, in New York and different, um, you know, just sort of like trying to sort of like cafeteria Zen Buddhism, sure, right? Like I was yeah. sort of like trying to figure out like whose vibe I was into. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, and so I went to a bunch of different Zendo's and I went multiple times and probably for like a year, I went to these places and I swear to God, no one said a word to me. (laughs) (laughs) I would just show up, I'd sit and do zazen, I'd listen to the Dharma talk, I would leave. Occasionally they would even have like cookies afterwards or something. And like people would just like, they wouldn't talk to me. (laughs) I was like, what the hell, man? Like, you know, there's this thing in, in, um, that I always remember when I joined the Harry Krishnas. Obviously, people thought the Harry Krishnas were a cult. Sure. So I did tons of reading about dangerous cults, and and I was really and even today I'm still sort of insanely interested in, in the world of cults. Oh yeah, you mean both.
1: <laughs> Dude, Monkey but, um, and a Stick, I'm sure you've read that. Oh right? yeah, of course.
2: It's <laughs> an amazing book. Yeah, yeah. It was, and and I read that book before I joined the Harry Krishnas.
1: Wow.
2: <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was still like, that's cool. Yeah. Um, all right. But. But one of the things that I remember in all these cult literatures and, and all the books was they would talk about this thing called love bombing. Mm. And the idea was that as soon as you show up on the doorstep of a cult, they're going to love the hell out of you. They're going to make mm. you feel so wanted and needed and, you know, so important. And, you know, you're just going to feel like, oh, my God, these are my people. I found right, this, you right. know. And yeah, to a certain extent that happens in the Hare Krishna it's not maybe not the way it does with the moonies or something. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> but, but the Christians are certainly they're they are proselytization, uh, movement, right. Yeah. They're there to convert people. Um, not so in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it didn't, like for that first year, I was sort of like, "Am I in the right place? What am I doing?" <laughs> nobody seems to care that I'm here.
3: Right.
2: <laughs> and uh, and I said this to Dosho, and he just started laughing because he said, "Yeah, nobody talked to me my first two years either. It's fine." Oh. <laughs> I was like, "Really? Okay, I'm not crazy." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, "Or maybe we're just not that interesting." <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know, maybe." But um. But so I appreciated that sort of difference, that contrast in in sort of my experience with moving into Zen Buddhism, because it forced me to make it about me. It yeah. forced me to sort of say, why am I here? Because really, nobody else gives a shit if I'm here. Yep. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> and so if I come, I have to be coming because I want to be here, because I'm, you know, because it means something to me. Um, and because the practice, uh, is, is, is somehow meaningful. Yeah. And so that actually was a good thing. And, you know, it's weird. I have mixed feelings about it. On some level, I want to tell every Zendo in the country, say hi to people. Sure. But, <laughs> but on another level, I sort of appreciated the, the window of opportunity that gave me to sort of understand my own practice, Yeah. um, sort of devoid of anyone else telling me what their practice was.
1: I think that's a beautiful thing for sure. You know, I'm curious uh, to, because, you know, you left the the Christian movement, you recognized it wasn't, you know, resonating for you, wasn't working. Um, and how long was the the period between that and the uh, you seeking out Zen? And a follow-up question, if I may, is, mm-hmm. you know, It sounds like, and I could be wrong, but I've had a thing where, you know, after the Christianity thing, I still felt some kind of pull towards something outside of myself. Um, and I'm not saying it's like a God by any means, but something, Mm -hmm. um, whether, you know, and, and I'm still in therapy every week exploring this thing called Chris, but, you know, maybe it was a need to have something fulfill like, um. I don't know, a, a level of uncertainty I was experiencing, but I've always felt a pull towards some form of spirituality. And, um, you know, there's just like anything in the world, there's so much attached to that. Um, but there's been a, a pull and whether it's even just a meditative practice, like it's certainly served me very well. And and that's why I love that uh, a lot of neuroscience um, is now being, and has for a while been integrated into uh, a lot of Eastern spiritual approaches and, and cause I, right. I, I love facts. I, you know, I don't want to just blindly adopt and accept things. Um, I want facts, but I also want my direct experience to play a role in that a very honest, right. direct experience. So, you know, the two questions are, how long was that for you? The, the time period between Krishna and coming into Zen and did you feel a pull towards that or what was it that um, ultimately, you know, just sparked that interest to go seek it out? Right.
2: So, okay. So that's sort of interesting. I, 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 the two things, obviously I think there is a relation. I, so I left the movement, uh, the Christianism in 2003 ish. Um, and after that, it was sort of like, um, spring break, right? (laughs) Like I was like, I am a full on atheist
1: (laughs) Fuck everything, you know, like the, like the Quakers when they leave and they have their time in the yeah. world. Yeah, right. right. what do they call that again? I, yeah, <laughs> I, a, I forgot, but I know. It's, I, you know
2: yeah, it's like something that sounds like Zumba or something. But uh, yeah. um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so it was very uh, a rum Ah, uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> but so, um, but yeah, so that's basically what it was. I just sort of felt free, and uh, you know. And essentially free from an ideology, free from a structure by which I could uh, uh, sort of organize my life and or make decisions and or just be. Yeah. And those things, you know, I hadn't had that in really a long time. I, I certainly had, you know, some sort of uh, ebbs and flows in terms of, quote unquote, how serious I was practicing sure. over those 13 or 14 years. Yeah. But um But it was always there. It was always present in my mind. Um, So the first thing I had to do, honestly, was deprogram myself. Mm -hmm. Because when you've been doing something for 13 or 14 years, it's embedded in your consciousness. It's embedded in your system, your your operating system. (laughs) And I sort of had to root it out. Find all the files, <laughs> put them all in the trash, delete them, clear the hard drive, and yeah, start over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right.
3: <laughs>
2: and it was um that was actually a process that took years. Um I also had to to figure out whether or not there was a Krishna-shaped void
3: mm.
2: or whether or not that was just uh you know something that was more or less um, additional, yeah. an, an appendix, let's say,
3: right.
2: um, that I didn't need like a spleen.
3: Right. <laughs> I like that analogy. Um, yeah.
2: Right. So I had to figure that out. Is this a heart or is this a spleen? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I guess what I came up with is that it was a spleen. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, it wasn't spirituality that I needed. Mm-hmm. I needed culture people a thing to do mm. kind of things that you can get from other places but um you know the spiritual part was sort of like sounds great like yeah. there were th- there there were things obviously i think you could say about meditation and any meditation practice right. that are beneficial and it certainly promotes um sort of a healthier living a healthier relationship with your mind, a healthier ability to focus and sort of relax. Um, you know, there are a lot of like sort of sort of fringe benefits to meditation, you know, that people talk about all the time. Just download Headspace and get your lot. Yeah. But, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, were those things that were spiritual? That was the question. And so here's where I'm saying is, is my answer. Mm. What happened was, I'd say three or four years ago, I started thinking about this question a little deeper. I had felt fully deprogrammed at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like over a decade, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd say during that time also, I went to, I went back to school. I got a master's in linguistics. That made me think about things a lot differently as well because in linguistics we're really thinking about language and sort of the way language creates reality. And one of the things that, you know, I was really interested in and and studying was the way that language has an opportunity basically to either describe your reality or prescribe your reality. Mm -hmm. And since we break everything down into language, including religion, um, I started to realize that what I was doing essentially was taking concepts and having them prescribe my reality as opposed to describing what actually was there. Yeah. And that didn't sit well with me. That made me feel like, okay, like, I think I get it now. I think I understand how this works. <laughs> and I think I understand like that to a certain extent, some people may really need that or, or need or want that. And I don't have any problem with that. That's amazing go for it. I don't look down on anybody who believes in God, who's practicing a religion sincerely, um, you know, who's practicing some form of spiritual life. What I realized though, over the last decade was that I had spent so much time in the heavenly planets, so to speak, (laughs) that I had completely ignored the carnal. i had completely ignored My body, myself, right? The first thing you learn in Krishna consciousness, the first thing they teach you and they drill into you, you are not your body; you are spirit soul. Mm. That's the first thing that you have to sort of accept. It's like the ABCs of of Harry Krishna. Sure. You are not your body; you are spirit soul. What I started to feel was like, that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what am I not if if I'm not this body? This body carries the sum total of everything I am, even if most of it's happening in my brain, Mm -hmm. it's there. And I think that we create these artificial distinctions all the time. Mind, body, soul, body, you know, we're, we're sort of always trying to like bifurcate things that need not be bifurcated. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the difference between mind and body, no, your mind is a part of your body. It's holistic. It's sure. all there. It's together. If your mind is sick, your body gets sick. Mm-hmm. If your body is sick, your mind can be sick. There's no separation there. This is, a, a, it's an ecosystem.
3: Yeah.
2: Um. And I think that we are in a culture that, and I think we're seeing this now in the time of COVID actually, I remember reading a book, I want to say it was in the early 2000s, Um, It was called The Myth of Individuality. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure that's what it was called. And I remember reading it because I just thought the title was provocative because, you know, obviously you come from punk world and in punk, like the whole thing is about, you know, your individual self, your unique self. And, you know, I had spent my entire life focused on this unique self. And. One of the things that I started to think about was that does this concept of individuality, and specifically as an ism, an individualism, mm-hmm. um, is this actually potentially harmful sure. yeah. um to the greater good? And I'm seeing this you know now in the time of covid, right like everybody's like, I should have the choice to go back to work or not wear a mask or right. whatever because they are completely they've turned individualism into complete self absorption yes yeah. they have turned into a place where um it doesn't matter if other people have to die, I have to work,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that's the darkest, darkest type of individualism
1: yeah,
2: yeah. and So when I start to think about it that way, it really put me in a position where I started to appreciate the sort of ecology of being human, the way that we are all connected, the way that I don't exist unless you see me. Mm. You know, Mm. it's we sort of exist by virtue of each other's existence. There's nothing that I am or that I do that is not dependent on other living things, yes, not just people. Oh, yeah. um, and so that really sort of, you know, is something that was definitely building over the years, especially as, you know, I've been a vegetarian since I was 14 years old. Yeah. I've thought about sort of the importance of other species for a long time. Um, but I was very, you know, taken by this, by really trying to apply this on, on the human level, as well, right, because mm-hmm. I think that's that's the irony of it. I think like, as a hardcore kid, I was so concerned about the animals that I didn't never thought about human beings really sure.
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so 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 here's the thing. so I was trying to focus on human beings. I was trying to focus on me as a physical being, right, with a yeah. body, um, and like not just with a body but as a body, um, you know, me as a piece of life that exists on this planet with so many other billions of other pieces of life. Right. And all those things were sort of like coming to me at around the same time. And I had actually begun sort of developing this idea for a book, like an almost like manifesto that I wanted to write.
3: Mm.
2: And I don't remember what happened, but about two and a half years ago, um I don't remember what it was that I was reading, unfortunately. But I started reading a book, a Buddhist book, just by just randomly. Sure. And almost everything that I'd written down was in the book. I was like, fuck, I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) Because up until that point, I had no concept really of Buddhism. Like my concept of Buddhism was the concept that's given to you as a Hare Krishna. Mm -hmm. And so the Hare Krishna's believe that uh, the historical Buddha was an incarnation of Krishna who came to earth to essentially pave the way uh, for Lord Chaitanya or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Mm -hmm. who sort of, um, created the the modern day Hare Krishna movement 500 years ago. And so Shakyamuni Buddha was considered, uh, that's why he, he taught what they call, um, what, uh, sorry, I'm Ah. floating so many words that I'm like, yeah, (laughs) um, impersonalism. So they, yeah. they they saw uh, Buddha as, as, as sort of like, uh, he had to do this because at the time in India, there was this rise in animal cruelty and meat eating and, and this sort of decline in sort of uh, theism. Yeah. And so Krishna came as the Buddha, this is what they say, Krishna came as the Buddha essentially to uh, establish ahimsa right? Mm-hmm. Nonviolence and compassion. Sense. And, um, and that way it sort of like paved the way because once people, because if people are killing cows, they can't possibly understand God. Yeah. So first things first, let's get them to stop killing cows again. And then Krishna will come back as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and save the world. Mm. So that was, you know, that was my perception of what Buddhism was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really just didn't, I just thought, oh, it's impersonalism. It's merging into the void. It's nihilism. It's whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, like I don't remember what this book was or even how I came across it, but for some reason I started reading a book and was like, oh, I don't know what Buddhism is at all.
1: <laughs> it's interesting how that works sometimes? Right.
2: <laughs> and not only that, I might be one because right.
1: I believe everything in, in this book. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so it was, uh, so that sort of like started me on the path. And then, you know, a lot of it was just sort of trying to figure out, you know, realizing, wow, there are a lot of different kinds of Buddhists.
0: Shit. Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now what? (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and so then I had to go through the process of, of sort of figuring out what, what, you know, made each one special, what made each one different. Um, what the sort of, I use this word mood a lot, which Mm -hmm. is actually a word that, that people in the Christian movement use a lot. Um, what's your mood? Um, and, and so like, I, but I think it's a, it's a helpful term to sort of parse the differences. Mm. Um, and so interestingly, I thought for a minute, I thought that Vipassana was my way, right? Like I kind of like, I like the way this is very secularish and, uh, you know, everybody just seems normal and, you know, it's cool. I did not expect to find myself intrigued by and continuously going back to Soto's Zen Zendo's because it felt very religious. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went uh, to one, I was sort of had that same freak out
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: that I did when I went into a Krishna temple. Uh, you know, there was bowing, there was chanting, there was... Um, you know, robes, yeah, <laughs> there were shaved heads. <laughs> um, you know, it was like all, and I was like, oh my God, am I doing this again? Really? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, whatever the case is, the mood of Soto Zen, the mood of Zen Buddhism, the mood of sitting in Zazen, um, you know, the heart wants what it wants. I just sort of, I went where I felt inspired.
1: I think that's awesome. And that's the beauty, you know, I, like I said, I don't consider myself anything per se, but I certainly feel attracted more to Eastern um, approaches, ideologies, practices. Um, But I have, you know, a deep reverence for Buddhism and the different schools that, uh, that come out of that Um, Zen, of course, wonderful. Uh, Mahayana, you know, I really appreciate that approach as well. I mean, all of them. I'm a big fan of uh, Nagarjuna's writing on the two truths Mm -hmm. doctrine and, you know, going back to the independent self and coming from punk, like and my website's called Indie Spirituals. The podcast is called Indie Spirituals. My first right. book is called that. And I'm like, <laughs> God, I don't like the word spirituality anymore. You know, there's like so much attached to that now. And so um, here's the hmm. second part of your question, because
2: yeah, yeah. I, I actually think that this is, this is relevant and it's kind yeah. of interesting to me. Yeah. So I don't consider what I do to be spiritual. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I understand why I would use the term like I understand why other people would use the term. I understand that it feels spiritual because, you know, there's a sense of intangibility to what I'm doing on some level.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: But actually I find Zen to be an extremely physical practice
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's something that I've been actually working on a lot lately. Um, and, and this is sort of related to my, uh, experience, I think, uh, you know, sort of with trauma and abuse. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: so when I was young and, uh, and being beaten, mm. <laughs> I, uh, you know, you have to develop survival strategies. Absolutely. And so I actually developed a real dissociative behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of learned how to step out of my body in some way, not, you know, in some sort of, um, weird eighties, uh, you know, sort of, <laughs> I left what do you call it
1: <laughs> when you leave your body? <laughs> oh, out-of-body out experiences. Or,
2: yeah, yeah, or like, yeah. And it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> yeah, right. I got you. You know, I, I wasn't looking down at myself. Um, astral but it was more traveling just, and all that wonderful. A, yeah, yeah, astral projection. That yes. was the term I was thinking of. Exactly. So um yeah, so it wasn't anything like that. It was it was more just sort of almost turning my feelings off.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I sort of learned how to do that because And this is a bizarre thing. So I felt like it would enrage my abuser more if I didn't respond. Sure. Yeah. And I felt like what really got her going was when I was like, no, no, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of like, you know, panic. Yeah. And so I started learning how to respond differently. Now, here's the thing knowing how to dissociate from your body is not a good thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not healthy. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I realized over time, I mean, I laugh about it. It's tragic, but it's, you know, what can you do at this point? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I realized over time that this was something that I would just sort of do, you know, maybe not to the same extent, but I would do it a lot. I would just shut my feelings off completely. I would go numb. And part of shutting my feelings off wasn't just my emotional feelings, but it was also my physical feelings. It was also sort of like, you know, shutting myself or or really trying to separate myself from this physical being. And it was one of the reasons why, you know, when Christians were like, you're not your body," I was like, yeah, I'm not. (laughs) Yes. You know, because I'd felt this distinction. Right. But part of my practice now, honestly, is about. Connecting with the body—it's about being embodied.
3: Yes, yeah.
2: and and sort of that's you know I've been again this is something I've been working with uh, or working on for the last four months specifically, um, where I just sort of in January I had this really sort of dark period where I actually had to stop sitting because it was creating a lot of mental turmoil and I I, I just didn't think it was healthy. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so when I when I reapproached it um you know consulting with my teacher and sort of like you know how we were going to do this i wanted to sort of incorporate some more of some of the more sort of body practices of vipassana yeah. into my zazen and uh there's one practice in particular that i'm finding really helpful and amazing and what it is is uh it's finding instead of focusing on the breath it's finding four pressure points In your body when you're sitting Mm. and those four points as separate uh points of focus yeah so it could be the way your thigh is on your zafu it could be the way your hand is resting on your lap it could be the way your foot is on you know the zabutan or on the floor or whatever whatever it is wherever you feel touch a touch sensation you focus on that and When I've been doing that, it's actually just been really sort of reconnecting me with my body. And I think that as a queer person as well, I think that that was also something that I was doing poorly (laughs) with, because, you know, growing up as, as gay, I think that there was this element that I hated my body because of its desires. Sure. I I didn't want those desires and so it only made me more detached from that sense of physicality and from that sense of you know just being sexual which I again people bifurcate from the human experience as if you know it's bad as if there's some sort of like dirtiness to it. And sort of, again, like putting all those things back together, I feel like I'm basically just taking a broken, you know, vase mm. and putting it back together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really just trying to, to, to sort of understand this thing as one thing as it is and, yeah. and stop feeling the need to constantly cut it apart.
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: and so one of the things that, um, that really sort of took me to this place. And I don't even remember where I've heard it. Um, but I remember just hearing it and writing it down and just thinking like, this is it, this is it, this is it." Um, is the relationship between the word integration mm. and integrity. Yeah. I like that. Those, those are the things that, that just alone, every time I think about it, it's like the only way to have integrity is to be whole. As long as I am separate and in pieces, I will never have integrity.
3: Yeah.
1: I, so I, I want to say I really appreciate you talking about the body aspect because I too, and I, I know we're almost out of time, but this you know God we could go on forever right now, um in a good, really good way. Um, yeah. But you know, for me, what I found when I first came onto the quote unquote spiritual path or meditative path, um, prior to that, you know, I was deeply ingrained in drugs and alcohol and self-harm and suicide attempts and, you know, depression. And that was all a means of aversion, you know, so I didn't have <clears> to <the throat> feel. And then yep. just like you were saying, when I first stepped onto this path, it was, you know, meditation was like, wow, like I'm kind of transcending. And and I used it just as equally as drugs and alcohol as a means of aversion granted i wasn't putting these toxins into my body but still i wasn't you know i was trying to get out of my body that was the problem all along trying to escape and so you're so you know dead on in my opinion at least where that's okay i mean like meditation and, and getting in touch with whatever else your experience is that is you know maybe whatever i i don't know certain words uh like transcendent i know is also a loaded word but Whatever yeah. it is, it makes you feel connected to something greater. That's wonderful. But when we negate the body, like like, you know, as you mentioned, rule number one in, in Krishna consciousness, um, that can set us up for so many issues and and trouble and and just, you know, like dissociate uh actions like you had said. And through years of working with shadow material, I've had to r- learn to like uncover these aspects of myself that were suppressed and, and re-own them and reintegrate them in a healthy way uh, and one in which I can heal and bring that stuff I was trying to walk away from um, back in and walk through it in and, and a way, again, that's healthy and not suppressing. And so you know, similar to your four points practice, there's a great grounding practice I use, and, and I'll just share it quickly because I think it's mm-hmm. always helpful to, to share with listeners things that they can actually do. And simply, you know, you just bring your awareness to five things, or, or it's five steps. One is you just focus on five things you can see, then you pay attention to four things you can feel, then three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And what that's doing is it's grounding you back into the body, taking you out of the discursive mind and the thoughts that lead us to those anxieties and fears and shames and guilt and all sorts of other, you know, just unpleasant experiences. And it brings you back into the body and, and to me that's you know like i said it's a very grounding practice um and that's been a huge yeah, I like part that. of my yeah thanks and, you know not mine by any means i forgot where i learned it but yeah you know, it's it, that's been very big for me was to learn to you know honor like nagarjuna the two truths of this physical body but that there is something you know in zen even you know the interconnectedness of all things the interbeing like It's, you know, it's a beautiful thing to be literally uh, this body, but also be connected and dependent upon every other thing as it's happening. So, right.
2: And I think there's, there's, you know, there's something to be said also when you talk about that yearning for spirituality. Yeah. Here's the thing. My feeling is that. When we talk about spirituality, what we're actually talking about is either things we don't we things we can't touch or things we haven't seen yet.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And my feeling is there are so many things on this planet that we can touch and that we can see. Yes, sure, sure. <laughs> that we have absolutely zero gratitude for yes, right yep. <laughs> and And my feeling is that's that's where the physicality comes in. That's where that's where this is a physical practice to me because this is basically saying i don't even have the capacity to understand the world the planet that i'm in and all the people and amazing things in it and all yeah. of the, the the sort of quote unquote miracles that are they're not miracles you know they that's exist true. they're real things that i can point at and yeah. and that i can be grateful for and why aren't i doing that why do i need more than that why do I keep looking outside of that? And it's just like, you know, there is a Buddhist point about looking for happiness outside your body. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. (laughs) There's so much about you and so much inside of you and you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of it. And you're already looking outside of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I, I love it. that's like the emptiness teaching in Buddhism. You know, it, look, yeah. it sounds very nihilistic, but no, it's like thanks to emptiness that that gives ground for all things to arise. It's not a mm-hmm. negative, depressing thing, and it goes back to the mindfulness practice I mentioned towards the beginning of the conversation, where when you mindfully look, and I know that's a hot word right now, and it has been for right. years, but you know, lay that aside and take the practice for what it is. You know, just like you said. When you're outside, take a minute and look at a blade of grass or look at a tree or look at whatever, but try to look at it in a way that, you know, you lay aside your concepts and your notions and it's like your first time seeing it. It can be a miraculous experience like and talk about gratitude like, I, the, you know, wow. So... I
2: mean, it doesn't even have to be nature. Of course. Like, I'm just looking like, you know, it's my funny. Window, it's like yeah. I just sit, I just sit here and I'm thinking about the nature of what we're doing. Sure. I'm talking to you through a wire that's connected to a phone that's yeah. connected to some towers that's somehow beaming into your phone and like, <laughs> right. or your computer, or I don't know what you're even talking to me on. But right, right. somehow we're having this conversation in real
1: time. <laughs> crazy? And that's insane. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Look deeper at anything.
2: Oh, man! So really, what I'm saying is we need to call this podcast the indie physicalist <laughs> <laughs> because that's yes. essentially what we're talking about i'm I i'm it. interested I'm still interested in in sort of the here and now and and what we have and 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 sort of these things that don't need some sort of supernatural explanation
3: yeah
2: um and i I love that, and I think that can be as quote unquote spiritual as any sort of um more traditional spiritual route.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And you know, since my first book I've talked about that and having quote unquote spiritual experiences at a Slayer concert. And but but you know, <laughs> using the context, like you said, it's like the energy, the excitement, you know, like getting married or whatever, not comparing Slayer to getting married, but you know, it's it's it that it could be. I, we I don't mean, know. Yeah, you know, you're actually very <laughs> correct there. Like you make such a good point though. It is that really beautiful uh just experience and um same as the first time i heard krishna das it reminded me of the first time i heard punk rock i had that same experience of it like just cutting through and it felt very raw and authentic and you know it it just cut through like my heart in a beautiful way um and and you know that was i don't have to label it as anything it was just a really cool experience that absolutely happened in this physical body. So, yeah, man, we've (laughs) all right. This is part one. I'm going to call this part one of our conversation (laughs) because we're going to I feel like have five or 10 parts to this. But Norman, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was a great beginning to the conversation because really, I think there's so much uh, more that we have to discuss. And there are so many points I wanted to make to yours. And um, we'll have to pick this up uh, very soon. So we can continue this if you're uh, if you're up for that. Sure. Anytime. Awesome. So Norman, thank you so much. Uh, is there, not that we're doing this to promote anything, but, um, (laughs) you know, you are still creating and and you've always been, and always will be, you know, this creative being, um, I know you've been doing a lot of DJing and stuff. Do, is there a website or anything or any where people can look for the, uh, anthology that you're, um, working on the new antimatter? Yeah. I mean, the
2: antimatter book's pretty early and it's, and it's, uh, sort of planning stages at this point. So I don't know. And especially with the pandemic, I have no idea, yeah. you know, how this is going to <laughs> move along. I understand. <laughs> but, um, but everything that I am is either on Twitter or Instagram I'm at Norman Brannan.
1: Perfect. So we'll have that linked. If you're checking this out on the be here now site, just scroll down and we will have uh, both the Twitter and Instagram pages linked. Click on them, follow Norman. I do. It's uh, always lovely to see your posts. They make me smile. And, uh, super grateful i'm jealous of that texas cassette you uh posted too long ago (laughs) big fan anyways somebody just needs to offer me the right price for it (laughs) Uh, so you don't say that things
2: people were you know they were they were dming me like are you selling that i was like no but i mean they didn't give me a number.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Don't tell me things like that, especially right now, because retail therapy is a real thing. And when it comes to something like that, oh man, it's just so rare. That's I know. one of the
2: things that's so rare. Yeah. So that's that was yeah. That's Super cool.
1: <laughs> I mean, very rad stuff. Well, Norman, thanks so much. Um, you know, we will pick this up again, and uh, I wish you health and safety. Uh, for those who don't know, you're you know you're out in New York City, where uh, it sounds like things are starting to slow down a bit. I hope that yeah. continues. Um, I'm glad you're well, and uh, please just keep taking good care of yourself. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Talk soon. Absolutely. Bye bye. All right. Bye.